This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. For most of our other episodes, I've been traveling far and wide to, to visit haunted houses or interview exorcists or be scared by marionettes. But this week, I didn't go anywhere. And that's because I didn't have to. I'm currently in what has turned out to be our de facto recording studio for the podcast, the attic of a 130-year-old home with a, a long and unknown history. If I'm not on the road or conducting an interview with a guest, this is where we record all of our voiceover narration and hold all of our production meetings. The room is on the top floor of a three-story Queen Anne-style house that was built here in Pasadena back in 1893. In the 80s, it was actually added to the National Register of Historic Places, so it's been maintained to look exactly like it did when it was first built. Today, the house really stands out on the street. Next to all the contemporary architecture surrounding it, it's like a building frozen in time. As with most old homes, the interior has all kinds of quirky features. Oddly shaped spaces, narrow, creaky staircases, and, and a cellar that, well, let's just say we don't talk about the cellar if we don't have to. Because I'm kind of a scaredy cat, I've always found this house to, to be unsettling, especially at night when I'm here by myself. It hasn't helped that when I am here, I'm almost always watching horror movies or listening to interviews about horror movies, or in some cases, listening to real life exorcisms. So even though I hate to admit it, my imagination has certainly gotten away from me on more than one occasion. For a while, I thought I was handling things pretty well. I was fairly confident that whatever I was hearing or seeing in the house really was just a product of my overactive imagination. Or at least that's what I kept telling myself until a few weeks ago. Because that's when the grandfather clock suddenly came back to life. And the downstairs toilet started flushing on its own. So tonight, we've decided to do a little paranormal investigation of our own. I've invited two other members of my team who work here, Stephen and Kenneth, to help me capture some video evidence of whatever it is that's going on in this house. If there really is something or someone here, we're gonna find out. What have you done to him, you maniac? I'm your number one fan. Don't fall. Asleep. Oh, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. I'm not gonna hurt you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. What an excellent day for an exorcism. Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. We have such sights to show you. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Exploring fear, faith, and stories that scare the hell out of us. I'm your host, Cutter Calloway. Be afraid. On this episode, we move from toys that come alive when we're not looking to dolls who are possessed by Satan himself. Along the way, we think about all the footage we're creating every day on our smartphones and social media feeds and how that might very well be documenting the horrors that constantly surround us. Remember that scene from Toy Story we talked about in our last episode? The one where Forky and Woody meet Gabby Gabby and her ventriloquist henchmen? I think we'd all agree that they were definitely right to be suspicious. 
But Gabby Gabby isn't the first or even scariest doll to grace the silver screen. I already talked about the 1978 film Magic starring Anthony Hopkins and his murderous ventriloquist dummy. But there's also 1987's Dolls, the 1989 film Puppet Master, the 92 film Dolly Dearest, a 2018 film called The Boy, and any of the eight Child's Play movies starring the killer doll Chucky, not to mention the three seasons of the current TV series that go by the same name. Oh, and don't forget the most recent addition to the doll horror genre, Megan, which adds a new twist on the formula by making the killer doll an AI bot that, you guessed it, doesn't end up following the prime directive. But none of these compare to the box office success of Annabelle. thinking about it. When you hear it, you're gonna think we're insane. All she wanted was to be friends. When we heard this, we felt really sorry for her. I mean, we're nurses, we help people. So, we gave her permission to move into the doll. Wait, you did what? She wanted to live with us by inhabiting the doll. We said yes. But then things got worse. beyond terrified. We don't know what's going on or what to do. The inhuman spirit tricked you. You gave it permission to infest your lives. Demonic spirits don't possess things. They possess people. He wanted to get inside of you. To help me unpack why Annabelle is so incredibly disturbing, I sat down with the two people who were probably more responsible than anyone else for sowing seeds of distrust between humans and dolls, Carrie and Chad Hayes. The twin brothers launched what is now known as the Conjuring Universe, which at over $2 billion is the highest grossing horror franchise in history. They wrote The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2, which has generated a series of sequels and prequels, including three Annabelle movies, The Nun and The Nun 2, and a third Conjuring film. Before we got to Annabelle, the first thing I wanted to know was whether the horror genre was something they pursued or whether the genre pursued them. It pursued us. Yeah. And um, it's a very interesting story because prior to House of Wax, which was our first big studio scary movie, um, we'd been writing Disney Channel movies <laughs> and, you know, happy movies of the week. And we went in uh, to William Morris and said, we, We'd like to try this feature thing. We're working pretty heavily in television and we both had young kids. And if you worked in TV or 14 hours a day, you're on location you just, you don't have much of a family life if you want it. So they moved us over to an agent that was going to rep us to help us get to the other side. And our very first meeting was with Joel Silver and um, Susan Levin, who's now Susan Downing, Robert Downing's wife. And they had been pursuing, does, they said, does the title House of Wax mean anything to you? And we knew it was a Vincent Price film. And we had had a very odd encounter early on, prior a couple of years earlier, that we thought this would make the best horror opening of a movie. And it was a real life experience. So Carrie and I are on a road trip with our younger brother to go up to Canada to go to a family reunion. We pull over about four in the morning just to sleep for a couple hours. We go up a fire trail. Just sleep bags on the ground. Yeah, it was rough. It was rough camping. And my younger brother had a very broken Volkswagen rabbit at that time. 
and headlights barely worked, everything barely worked. So we put our bags in front of the headlights and laid down. The minute we laid down, oh my God, a, a smell that like we've never smelled before. Like, like death, like death. the death. worst thing. And then it would go away. It's like the wind shifted or something. And we were turning the headlights on. Of course, we didn't have flashlights or anything we needed. Headlights on, couldn't see anything. Second time we awakened to that smell at the exact same time, a pickup truck with its headlights on is coming up the trail and literally stops 20 feet from us, 30 feet. Headlights, headlights on, on us. All three of us. And you could wear a baseball cap, silhouetted by a moon, right out of a movie shot and rifles on a gun rack behind him. So we all got out of our bags and like, who are you? What do you want? What do you want? Like this. And he just kept the engine going, engine going. Didn't even. Then he put it in reverse and backed all the way down the trail. So then we're like, is he parking and coming up with one of those rifles? And you're like, I'm, is that why something's dead? Is this a serial like, killer? Is he a killer? Is, is he all this? So I woke up at first light and I got up and I just started laughing because we had managed to plant our bags about 15 feet from a roadkill pit. We scrape them off the road and dump them. So this, this poor guy was like, who are these dudes sleeping next to a roadkill pit? He was probably just as afraid, but we thought, what an interesting opening to a movie, and hence that's the opening to House of Wax. For those who haven't seen their 2005 film, House of Wax, the film really does open with a group of teenagers, including none other than Paris Hilton, thinking they're being stalked by a killer in the woods, only to discover that they've actually set up camp next to a roadkill pit. I mean, the very first movie we ever did, which is an indie movie called The Dark Side of the Moon, right. was take the Bermuda Triangle, put it infinitely up in space, and anything flies in it, disappears. So it's kind of like these this is spaceships way up Spaceships, yeah, come across uh, an empty ship, and it's the devil's playground. And so that, I mean, that was fun, but... Right after we did House of Wax, and, and it got pretty well received that, oh, you guys write scary stuff. We go, sure we do, absolutely. And so we start getting fed these different movies. Joel gave us another one right away called The Reaping. The Reaping. Which starred Hilary Swank, which was really cool. That was a Return to Faith movie. Yeah. Yeah. It was really cool. That and was then, loosely uh, based on our aunt who's a missionary up in Canada. She was um, based in India with her husband, who was a pastor. And they moved over to Southern India and they started a church in an orphanage over there. And her own children went to boarding school when they were there. They were there for 10 years. And on the anniversary of them coming home, which was New Year's Day, 10 years later, my uncle went to return some books to a friend and never came back. And they found him dead on the side of the road. And we looked at our aunt and I was like, oh my God, she must be so angry, like angry at the Lord and all this. And she was like, oh, Herb's right where he's always wanted to be. He's, she was a so okay she was so, with Yeah, so we took yeah, that idea and we go, what if she What if you open? So the reaping opens with Hillary as a missionary in the Sudan with her husband and a child. And husband and child are murdered in this camp. Movie picks up five years later. She's now a miracle debunker. She's out to prove God does not exist. And so we connect her with Idris Alba who was a gangbanger, shot 13 times, told he should never survive. And the doctor said, it is a miracle. So he's out to prove that the Lord does She goes to investigate the, a river has turned red with blood in Louisiana. And it's a rebuild of the 10 plagues. The 10 plagues yeah. and, uh, and gets to a point where she can't deny it. And at the center of this is a, a, a girl that everybody in town says, this is the devil's work. This girl is doing this. She's evil. And her mother's wacky as 
just like really out there. And we have one great line is that mother says to Hillary, did you come here to kill my daughter? And she goes, oh my God, no. And she goes, why not? She wants him dead, right? And the, the twist on it is, is the little girl is an, actually an angel. And, and the town is evil and they all want her gone, but they can't kill an angel. So your, your initial interest in and experience with the supernatural and paranormal kind of set you up in a unique way to be able to tell scary stories about real world occurrences. Which brings us to Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are the husband and wife duo that are central to the Conjuring universe. Uh, this is the franchise you're probably best known for, but as I went back and rewatched the movies, I'd forgotten that you, you set up that very first film with a cold opening featuring a super creepy doll known as Annabelle. <laughs> and given my aversion to dolls, I can't think of a more terrifying way to introduce a film. But can you tell me why you chose to introduce the film with a segment on Annabelle? And how has Annabelle figured in the story as each subsequent film has been well, made? Well, it's interesting because we wanted to give Ed and, War Ed and Lorraine Warren credence before we started our story. That they were already in something else and then they're, they're called here and it's a perfect opportunity in the horror world to do a scary opening. And James Wan, the director, has the exact same reaction to dolls that yes. you do. Yes. And so we thought, oh, this is perfect. Let's just, we had to recreate the Annabelle doll because it, the the Annabelle doll is a Raggedy Ann doll. And legally we couldn't. Mattel's like, you're not gonna make Raggedy Ann a scary, scary doll. <laughs> so James actually designed that doll. He did an, an amazing, amazing job. And his, they kept bringing it into the office and you know, change the face, do this, paint these up here and, and do all that. But yeah, he hit dolls. If you, there's a lot of dolls in his movies. And, um, and so it's that same version, but it was, um, exactly what Carrie said. Let's, let's set the Warrens in their world. Let's see what they do, you know, and then yeah, they the, bring it the, home. The truth be told, the very first movie James originally wanted to do Amityville horror opening with Ed and Lorraine because they investigated it. Right. And that's why it ended up in the second one. But the reason it wasn't in the first one is the studio said, well, we're not promoting another studio's movie mm -hmm. and which made total sense. Mm -hmm. And then James like, okay, I don't want to do this with the Annabelle doll. And, uh, and they had actually had, um, you know, their real life experiences, those nurses that we read. And uh, it was pretty freaky what had happened, but it's like everything you're not supposed to do, you're like, you what? <laughs> you what? So that opening is basically what they actually did. The, the nurses were like, okay, so we accept that this demon should come in and, you know, possess the doll. Yeah. So nine-year-old girl, we felt sorry for her. We felt... Crazy that when you watch the movie, the actor We're nurses, who played, we care for people. But the yeah. actor who played the boyfriend looks somewhat comatose when you look back. Yeah. Because um a scene got cut out of that opening where extreme trauma happened to him just before he was being interviewed by the Warren. It's only because the in the final he has no lines or anything, right? Yeah, he just sits there and he just sits there. Yeah. And uh but I mean he had stuff to do. He'd gone into a room, he got attacked into a room, and so you're seeing him post attack. Hmm. in the opening of the movie, which still works. You know, you don't know why he's that way. He's just so traumatized. Yeah, it's, it's weird so... that that something like a doll, a happy-go-lucky, you know, Chucky doll, is a little different than, than a Raggedy Ann doll or something. But you put dolls on a shelf, no matter what they look like, in a dimly lit room with maybe some flickering candlelight, and everybody's waiting for something to happen because it's just such a... They look a little too real and, you know, what are they really and all of that. So it's a good trope to put and in. And the larger they get, the scarier they get. 
I was talking to Pete Doctor about this, and he reminded me it's called the Uncanny Valley, where any character with a face generates empathy because it looks human. But then there comes this point where it's getting really close to looking genuinely human that our empathy nosedives, and we become unsettled and scared by it because it's close to looking like an actual human but is just off in some way. I think that's part of it, but I also think there's a few things in play as well, like... For instance, inanimate objects shouldn't move on their own. So I'd be curious to know, as filmmakers who've used a very specific doll in their movies, what is it about Annabelle that you think is so god-awfully scary? Well, it's like give you something, any toy that a kid loves, a slinky. Kid's going up the stairs and here comes slinky by itself down the stairs. Shh, nobody's upstairs. You've taken that little fun little toy yeah, and, changed. and changed it into something I'm now scared of, right? So. To support what you're saying is like, oh, I can let my guard down because this is my security blanket. This is something I'm really comfortable with. I mean, it's like we're doing a movie now with the pull string of, of in the in the 70s. It's, we won't mention what it is yet, but you would do a pull string, and we're starting. We have so much fun with that pull string, you know. And then one time it's in a closet when you put it away and took the batteries out, and you hear the talk. And then you open the door, and it's not on the shelf; it's on the floor. And the pull strings out, but it's recessed into darkness. It's and you pick it up and something's holding it. And then you pull this way and <laughs> what emerges out of the darkness is pretty freaking scary. What's holding the string? And you build from there. So it's like, take the little, it was, it's a little character, little boy's little security blanket. It was, yeah. Who had a trauma in his life and he's regressed a little bit and backwards and he's grabbed onto that as security. It's a present his father gave him as his father passed. And so the concern is, this is all very normal. The therapist is, we understand, blah, blah, blah. So you're pacifying the parents to not really pay too much attention to this really scary stuff. Because you always, in our movies, you fight the biggest question is, why don't they just get out? Just leave. You have to satisfy that every single time. Hashtag get out. Thank you, Jordan There you go. And it's, um, but it's true. It's really true. And you work really hard. I mean, in, in, in The Conjuring, we, we just say the line in the movie. We're a family of seven. Who's going to take us in? And Roger, we got him out of the picture. We made him on the road all the time. And we also said it's like stepping on gum no matter yeah, where, where you, you go, go. it's going to come yeah. with you. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty effective device. Uh, no matter where you go, it's going to follow you. It's inescapable. And some of that comes down to the way you tell the story and how you create tension in a movie. But you also had an actual relationship with the real life Lorraine Warren, whose story you're telling. Can you share a bit about her and her involvement in the films when she was still alive? I will share you an experience that kind of tripped Karen and I out is we would get on the phone with Lorraine sometimes for two or three hours. She lived in Connecticut and, um, and we would just be talking. And then I kid you not, suddenly voices would go, like the like tongue you know over the phone and she would just i say in the name of jesus and she would recite scripture and she would just blah 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 blah. you are not welcome they would just fade away and boys what were we just talking about they don't like that what were we just talking about and luckily we recorded everything in the movie yeah Yeah. and so yeah it was trippy and that happened that happened a couple of times because they filmed everything like in 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 the conjuring the exorcism scene with the guy at the beginning and the priest is doing the exorcism and you see these crosses come out that she had footage of crosses pushing out of the body and this Maurice. is old old stuff and then when we did conjuring 2 the young girl who had water marbles and tape on her mouth and could speak 
And just like you're going, what? She goes, yeah. Yeah, it was a little weird. And then the cops had showed up and all that crazy stuff was going on. They couldn't explain it. It's all, it's nothing better than getting a true story, handwritten document. This is it. Talk to the people who lived it. And you look in their eyes and they're speaking the truth. They're not lying. You know, it's like, why would they lie? You know, it's crazy. But um, when someone tells you a story and it scares you to listen to them, imagine getting to write that story. You know, that's a very smart thing. Uh, I wish it was our idea, but when they were promoting The Conjuring, they had the five daughters and the husband come out to the location where we were outside the studio. The house. Real yeah. life folks? Oh. Yeah, yeah, the, the real five life. daughters. All, that, that all, house. all in their 50s That was all exterior 60s. location there. We didn't shoot in that house. house. Yeah. And we were shooting that scene with a Bathsheba up in the tree. And they had sat the girls down and they interviewed them by group and then one by one. And they said, what frightened you the most in the house? Uh, well, there was this little boy, Rory, and he, you, I thought he was my friend. And bam, we cut to Rory in the movie with the thing. So we're telling the audience, this is in fact a true story. You're hearing it being told from the person it happened to, to be made from a filmmaker's point of view. And we did that, did that, did that. And I, I only wish that we were filming because the, the five sisters came walking around the corner of this house right as we're shooting that tree and the youngest one, Cindy, full grown, looked at that and literally collapsed to the ground. And turned the her back hanging to, from the tree. Turned her back to it, just was freaking out. She was like, scrambled her knees and ran to the front yard. Damn, I was like, we didn't have a camera. And, but I mean, utterly, it was so visceral for her still. As you yeah. share that story, it makes me think that in addition to it being a part of this family's actual lived experience, her visceral response might also have something to do with the fact that all this horror takes place for her and her family in their home, which is really an otherwise peaceful, kind of pastoral piece of land. It should be one of the safest places to be, but it turns out that it's definitely not the case. Yeah. Well, yeah, again, it all comes in your setups. I mean, in, in The Conjuring, we want our girls to live out in the country, to experience fresh air, not live in a city and, oh, look, a dumb dog won't go into the house. Dumb dog. And then you're like, oh, Dog mm. was the smartest one Dog of all of them. The, like, uh -uh. The, the brightest one there. So um, I think it's fun to take to take something and turn it upside down. Like like something's make you make you feel comfortable. Like like even you know the the classic babysitters in the house. It's all locked, and the phone rings, and it's I'm upstairs, and then you go, no, we we'll lock the house, and then there's the front door wide open, right? And then then now it's a personal. Do I leave? Or did I go save the kid that that's my job? So you, you take those those confines that are, you know, wrapped around you to make you feel safe and, and you crumble them. And then automatic tension, automatic. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on The Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. 
I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But they, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. In the hands of high-caliber filmmakers like Chad and Carrie Hayes, something as innocuous as a tree standing outside a farmhouse in rural Rhode Island transforms into something that has the power to cause a full-grown adult to flee in terror. And at least part of their film's effectiveness has to do with the fact that it's based on real events. But it also has to do with the way they create scenarios in which the places and objects that people most often rely upon for safety and security simply crumble away. That's how something as innocent as a doll named Annabelle can strike fear into the heart of a person like myself, a person whose ventures into that uncanny valley never seem to go very well. I'm here now with Kenneth Chang and Stephen Scheidler. Right now we're all getting ready uh, with some of our sound and video equipment. And I think the plan is we're gonna do two main things. First, we're just gonna camp out on the first floor. We're gonna bring some video cameras and attempt to capture any activity near that grandfather clock. And second, after we do that, we're gonna all go down to the cellar together. We're also gonna bring uh, (laughs) some uh, video equipment to check out the leak that we can't seem to fix. So Kenneth, you've probably worked in this building the longest, and from what I understand, uh, the grandfather clock has has not worked at all the whole time you've been here. So tell me about what happened when it first came back on. There's a grandfather clock on our downstairs floor, and we, we don't know the backstory behind this clock. We just know it's probably as old as this house. And it's never worked. In fact, we asked if we could get a specialist in to get it to work. And over the weekend, I think about a week ago, it just started going off. At it's, like a specific time, top of the hour? That's what I thought at first. Like it would, uh, the first time I heard it was like 6.59 p- p.m. So I thought, oh, it's at the top of the hour. And it would do the dum, 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 dum. Either that, or sometimes it just goes, doom, 
So um, I would just keep in mind when it would go off. And I realized, no, it goes off at like 7.15, goes at 8.20. It just has a mind of its own. Uh, coworkers said they didn't touch it. Nope, nobody has interacted with this clock, but now it works and it goes off. All right, so Steve, you also started hearing the grandfather clock. So I heard it, we, we had a, uh, a gathering here one night. It was our movie club. It was after the movie club. And I was talking to the other guy that hosted with me. And we're just talking about, you know, next steps, whatever. And all of a sudden, it goes off. And it was one of those long ones like you were just doing, Kenneth. And we had to stop talking, it was so loud. Like, it, like we were trying to talk over it for a second, but then I was like, wait a minute. This is what they were talking about. I have a charismatic background. And so I used to believe strange occurrences. I would pay attention to the numerology, where I was, who I was with, and I'd try to interpret if it's communication from the divine. What I started doing was, if it was at 722, it went off, I would type in on Google, Bible verse 7 colon 22, something like that. And I, and I, and I wrote it down, and I'll show it to you, Cutter. Um, but it, it wasn't just the grandfather clock. You also now have started experiencing some odd things with the plumbing. It, it, am I right? <laughs> We've had a couple of events here. One of the people that helps to, to host that event said that when they were cleaning up, they noticed a leak. Well, later on, a couple days later, I, I decided to go down and check it out and see where this leak was coming from. And mind you, the, the house is, is empty at this time. There's no, one, there's no one there. And all of a sudden, I hear a flush. That's weird. And it goes off again. And then the toilet on the second floor goes off. And then one of the sinks turns off. And then the dishwasher goes off. And I was like, what? Is someone here? Is someone pulling a prank? Go upstairs, no one there. And it caused a lot of flooding downstairs, and so there's all this water down there. I don't know what's, I don't know what's from. Horror films featuring creepy dolls and possessed toys do more than simply remind us that we're vulnerable. They flip vulnerability on its head, undermining our sense of safety by turning the most common objects of comfort into sources of anxiety and dread. The things we love, cherish, and trust, the things in which we find joy, safety, and security become the very things that threaten our lives. In other words, it's not just that there are things out there that might harm us. It's that the things closest to us are revealed to be the very things that are terrorizing us. And this includes the spaces and places that are designed to protect us. In a horror film, no amount of precautionary measures are enough. You can lock the doors, you can set the alarm and turn all the lights on, you can clutch your safety blanket in one hand and your childhood stuffed animal in the other, but none of it matters because the call is coming from inside the house. It's a truth that none of us want to admit, and as adults, it's one that we go out of our way to deny. But no matter where we go and no matter how safe we may convince ourselves we are, our lives are constantly under threat. 
It's an inescapable fact of life, but that doesn't mean we don't try to escape it. As kids, we don't really have a choice in the matter. We're stuck, completely dependent upon our caregivers and the adults in charge, even if those authority figures turn out to be absent, distracted, or otherwise unconcerned with the threats we're encountering every day. But as adults, we are masters at convincing ourselves that we do have a choice. So we do things like retreat to the suburbs, as if that will somehow protect us from threats of violence and chaos. And yet, as one horror film after another makes clear as day, even in the most bourgeois of gated communities, the terror and the trauma will always find us. But adults don't just move to the suburbs to protect themselves from their worst nightmares. They also do things like replace the dolls of their childhood with more age-appropriate toys, sophisticated security blankets that come in the form of gadgets constantly monitoring our home and its surroundings. Anyone have a ring device? In a particularly ironic twist, we adults sometimes even put those monitors in toys and dolls, ensuring that our children's beloved teddy bears are equipped with the capacity to capture documentary footage of everything that happens in their room, as if that will somehow ease our fears and anxieties or prevent harm from befalling us or our children. But anyone who has a nanny cam or has installed a video doorbell that alerts them to every movement that takes place outside not only their front door, but all of their neighbors' front doors too, knows full well that no amount of real-time data can deliver on its promise of security, much less peace. If anything, these devices do the opposite. Rather than keeping things out, they actually invite terror and fear into our most intimate and vulnerable spaces. Think of the TV in the now classic film, Poltergeist. Inside the bedroom of a newly developed home in suburban Agora Hills, California, the TV becomes the means by which sinister spirits invade what is otherwise a completely safe home in a completely safe part of town. Poltergeist came out in 1982, and in that film, the family's TV functions as a kind of gateway that allows supernatural evils into their home. But in the time since Poltergeist hit the big screen, a more recent subgenre of horror has emerged known as found footage. And in these films, technological devices like TVs, camcorders, mobile phones, and in-home surveillance equipment no longer function as spiritual mediums. Instead, they simply provide documentary evidence for just how terrifying certain places and spaces already are. So how long do we think we've been here at this point? Because, uh, so I don't know, six hours, seven hours, I've seen nothing yet. Kenneth, Steven, and I sat for hours. Nothing happened. I mean, nothing. At one point, I actually thought Kenneth was just messing with us and seeing how long we'd sit in that room waiting for the clock to go off. But that's when things got a little eerie. I'll let you listen. Yeah, so like what I was, was just. Well, oh, shit, look. Yo, 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 Steve, Steve, look. I, that can open. It's, it's an old house, dude. I'm telling no, you. No, 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 no. No, I'm, tell I'm telling you. There. Dude, Steve. It's okay. Dude, it's okay. okay. This happens in my office all the time. It's fine. It's an old yo, house. Um, if that. Opens one more time, I'm out of here. Look, that's after the, the way I shut that. If it opens, I'm right behind. Dude, it's like paranormal activity. You watch paranormal activity? I can't watch that stuff, man. Like it's, it freaks me out too much. Like, I... 
But I'm telling you. Just gravity and a poorly hung board. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think, too. Like, I, oh, oh hell no. No, no, no. Guys, get the out of here. To tell a story about evil spirits coming into a home through a TV is one thing. To show supposedly objective documentary footage of the evil spirits assaulting actual people in their home, well, that's something else altogether. And it's profoundly disturbing. If you don't believe me, I give you Exhibit A, the 2007 film, Paranormal Activity. I don't need to convince anyone who's seen that movie just how terrifying it is. But the question is, why? Why is it that found footage movies like Paranormal Activity and The Blair Witch Project, and more recently, Skinamarink, are so incredibly unsettling? To help me make sense of this question and to understand more about how this subgenre works, I reached out to an expert in film criticism, Josh Larson. You might remember Josh from our first episode where he shared one of his earliest memories of being scared by a movie. Josh was a film critic for the Chicago-based Sun-Times Media for more than 10 years, and he now hosts the critically acclaimed podcast, Film Spotting. He's also the author of the new book, Fear Not, which explores the question of how Christians might respond to the horror genre. So I asked Josh to speak with me not just about horror in general, but about found footage horror in particular. Josh, I'm really interested in how found footage is so effective in generating the kind of fear that it does. So. If we started at a at a pretty basic level, what would you say the the primary fear is that this subgenre of movies is tapping into? Sure. I think found footage is examining at a very basic level our fear of the dark. And so many horror movies do. But what I mean by fear of the dark in this context, this subgenre, is what we cannot see. And the twist of the knife with this genre is it is fundamentally built on the lie that we're being provided with all the information we need. It's found footage. The story is here. It's it's so much the story, it doesn't need any garnering with narrative or subtitles or any other information. You know, the best found footage is just, you really, as the case with the masterpiece of the genre, the Blair Witch Project, you really could believe that these broken cameras were found, the footage was pulled out, thrown up on the screen. But as I said, that's a deception because what we're watching is often because it was purportedly casually gathered it's not everything you need to see it's these offhanded moments where what the camera was set down and we're watching it and what we really want to see is just outside of the frame um what we really want to see is what happened after they turned the camera off and there's that gap and so all of this is about knowledge um the knowledge that we are teased with and don't have and in the context of these stories, these life and death stories, we need to survive. So it, it, it's incredibly important that we get this information and we just do not have it. And that's the terror of experiencing a found footage horror movie. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a really compelling thought. OK, so so if it starts with our fear of all the things we can't see and all the information withheld from us, how does that maybe spin out into some of our, our bigger fears and anxieties? If you can extrapolate this from just a fear of the dark, a basic physical thing, it goes beyond that to, you know, fear for our lives. And it goes beyond that to the fear of our existential existence of not having this knowledge and having to realize that we're mortal beings. Like we grab the cameras because we think they're going to give us the eye of God. 
if we have this footage, if we have the camera, we'll know everything, we can see everything, we can be all seen as we think God is. Well, what these movies show us is, no, we're mortal, we're limited, we don't see everything. That is terrifying. What do we do in the face of that? Do we pick up another camera or do we embrace that and embrace our humility and say, it's going to have to be something else that gets us out of this situation, something non-human, um, something beyond our personal control and beyond our uh, technical means, <laughs> which these movies are also built upon. So the fear that we might not know everything is just, it's just unthinkable to us. Because it's presented as video evidence, our operating assumption is that we really are seeing everything from a purely objective, transcendent, godlike perspective even. But what you're saying is that the reason these movies are so terrifying is because they expose that assumption as fraudulent. It's a lie. By definition, we only see what's in the camera's frame and nothing else. We're essentially trapped, whether it's in a, in a house or the woods or some other place. And whatever it is that's terrorizing us is, is right there in the house with us. It's inescapable, which, which means that we're profoundly vulnerable. And that realization leaves us with no other choice but to admit that we don't have the resources to rescue ourselves or to overcome our fears on our own. Kind of makes me think of the, the recent found footage film, Skinamarink. Have, have you seen that one? If so, can you describe it for those who might not have? Yeah, basically, it's a pair of siblings who wake up in the middle of the night in a fairly innocuous suburban home, and it appears that their father uh, is missing. And so formally, why it does appear, appear to be found footage is a lot of this is poorly lit. It could be a home video camera that we're seeing, but we're never, I don't think we're ever really given the suggestion that one of the kids is carrying a camera. It's more as if one has been, I think the way I described it in my review is, you know, nowadays we have all these baby monitors. Uh, I used to have the audio ones. Now they're all video cameras, right? Mm -hmm. So it's almost like one of those video baby monitors has been haphazardly left on a shelf or dropped on the floor of this home and is recording. So we'll see these kids feet scurry by. We can hear them all the time talking to each other, whispering, um, you know, the, the most disturbing moments are when they, they just say, dad, and, and it's just like, you can hear in their voice, like they're really scared. And this goes on and on. These are long. I also described it as a work of slow cinema because these are long held static shots for minutes on end. And to go back to what we were saying, the information we are getting is very limited, but because these kids are in a panic and we surmise that the father's gone missing, um, it's, it's a very intense situation and more unfolds and happens. And we can debate whether that's to the movie's credit or not, but that's the basic premise. And so it certainly looks and feels like a found footage film, even if it doesn't might, even if it doesn't fit maybe all the criteria. Intense is maybe an understatement. What, what I found most unsettling were the long shots of a TV playing old black and white Mary Melodies cartoons from the 1930s. I can't quite explain why, but there was something about those moments that were just really unnerving. Any thoughts on why that might be? I mean, there's an intimacy there. And this is maybe something that we're losing in an era where we watch video everywhere now. Um, but think about where these TVs usually are in these movies. It's the bedroom. It's the supposed safe place. We're back to poltergeist again, right? It's the parents' bedroom. Um, where the TV, the, the insidiousness really begins with the television set. And I believe in Skinamarink, it seems to be in a downstairs living room 
type area, but that also seems to be a safe place. The kids' toys are scattered around this, and it's where they go instinctively when their father is missing. I think they decide, let's huddle up here. So when something ominous begins happening involving the TV, it's an extra invasion. Um, and it seems like that's that's kind of what's happening here. And you could say the same thing with, you know, video monitors, baby video monitors. Those are supposed to be tools of security. And when they begin operating in other ways, it's doubly upsetting. Even the use of, as we're talking, I'm just thinking of the baby monitor in Signs, the M. Night Shyamalan yeah, film. Yeah to detect the the aliens. You know, there's just something eerie about the fact, exciting because they're getting a clue when they start holding that up in the air, but also eerie that they're using a baby monitor rather than, you know, <clears throat> I don't know, some, you know, some sort of um, walkie talkie device or something for adults. You know, the fact again, also that children, the, the realm of children are being involved adds a level of unease, I think as well. Stop. There's two of them talking. As hard as it is for me to say about one of my storytelling heroes, I've decided Pete Doctor and I are just cut from different cloth. If you remember from our last episode, he finds it a normal part of childhood imagination, but I'm still convinced that talking dolls and toys are way more creepy than cute. Of course, I'm now including baby monitors and nanny cams in that mix, which means I'm still a work in progress when it comes to what scares me. Still. As I've listened to others talk about their experiences and reactions to toys and dolls, I think I've uncovered something about my own fear that I, I didn't fully realize before. On a pretty basic level, dolls that walk and talk are creepy simply because inanimate things shouldn't behave like they're alive. It's pretty unnerving to think your toys might be silently plotting to rise up against you like the toys at Sid's house do in the first Toy Story. But on another level, as Josh Larson points out, malevolent dolls and toys animated by evil spirits aren't just upsetting or scary in any straightforward or simple way, they're doubly upsetting because they're supposed to be reliable sources of security, of peace, of, of safety. Who can you trust if not your childhood dolls and toys? In films like Annabelle and Child's Play and Megan, we're confronted with the possibility that our trust in these objects may be entirely misplaced. They're neither trustworthy nor safe, and that's what makes them so utterly terrifying. Hi, I'm Chucky. Wanna play? But they're untrustworthy in another, perhaps even deeper sense. And at least from my perspective, it has something to do with the blurring of boundaries between found footage horror and killer doll horror. Here's what I mean. When it comes to dolls like Chucky, Annabelle, and Megan, a lot rides on their uncanny eyes. The ones that seem to follow you even when they're not actually moving even before they reveal their murderous intentions. It just feels like there's something or someone behind those eyes. Is it the spirit of a serial killer, a, a demonic presence, an AI-generated bot? We simply don't know. All we do know is that we can't shake the feeling that we're being watched. And if the past is precedent, whatever or whomever is watching us likely doesn't have our best interests in mind. In contrast, 
The dolls and toys in found footage aren't possessed by anything or anyone, but they are monitoring us, along with every other movement that takes place inside or just outside our house. And here's where it seems that found footage doesn't just play on our fears of malevolent dolls and toys, it turns it up to 11. Because an even more terrifying thought than my toy is out to kill me is the suggestion that whatever is behind those eyes is entirely indifferent to the horrors I'm facing. Just as the kids come to realize in Skinnamarink, the nanny cam can do nothing more than document our waking nightmare. It was set up to make our home safe, to ward off evil and violence and tragedy, and yet all it really does, even in our time of greatest need, is provide video evidence of our waking nightmare. The only thing worse than a killer doll is a doll that monitors the violence taking place inside the house and does nothing about it other than remind us that no one is coming because no one can hear your cries for help. All right, well, we lost Kenneth. Uh, he's out of here for good, Steve? Yeah, he's, he's done, he's uh, gone. Well, uh, me and Steve, since we said we'd film all these things, uh, we're gonna go ahead and go in the basement, even though that was a little creepy with that door opening. Um, I, I still think it was just the uh, wind and the other stuff, but here's the cellar. Here's our cellar. You're going first. <laughs> hey, hooray for us. Okay. They just had a guy. Let's see. All right, yeah, you told me that it's all new electricity and lighting. And, but none of it's working. Not so much. Right. Of course not. Um, well, we still, I think there's enough light we can get. Yeah. We can get enough for so now. Bad. Okay, so uh, that night when the leak happened, yeah. it was over here. It was in this area. Okay. Uh, which is weird. Uh, I know, it doesn't seem like, is it? What is above nothing, this? I feel like the parlor or something, not the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Um, hmm. And it was... Did you? Oh. I, I feel it. Like, is that water running that I'm hearing right now? Hey, Kenneth left though, right? Yeah, Kenneth is gone. Um, everyone else is gone too, right? But that's totally toilet yeah. or sink or something. Dude, I didn't believe you, but <laughs> that's, that's actually pretty creepy. Yeah. Um, Look. Oh, Steve. Whoa. Look. Whoa. That wasn't there, was it? Uh, no. I totally came in here. That was not there. All right, so you're right. There's a leak. Uh, it's coming from somewhere. <laughs> I don't know where we're actually uh, getting this uh, Yeah, because the pipes from. are that way. They're not over here. Huh. Let me go see if I can find out. I'm not seeing it dripping. The light's not great. Um, but I'm not seeing anything other place other than right here, which is, wait a minute. What Whoa. in the hell? Whoa. Are those? Is that you? No, I didn't walk. That's not even my shoe. I got, that's Holy insane. Crap. There are footprints. You've got to be kidding me. That is super uh, freaky. Uh, oh, 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 oh! Yeah. oh. Listen, I don't know exactly what, if anything, we encountered that night. All I know is that I have no need to do it again. You can make of it what you will, but you don't need to take my word for it. We've posted the video from that night on YouTube. Feel free to follow the link in the show notes if you wanna see what we saw after we went back into the basement the next morning to pick up that camera. 
But whether it was a shared hallucination or something really was messing with us in that cellar, I think it reflects one of the core fears that seem to plague those of us living in contemporary society. Every day, a deluge of video evidence arrives on our social media feeds, our TVs, and our inboxes. We bear witness to a seemingly never-ending cycle of horror and trauma and chaos and violence. It's a stark reminder that we don't have the resources or knowledge or wisdom to get us out of this mess ourselves. In the face of it all, we have no other choice but to admit that we have come to the end of ourselves and that we desperately need someone or something outside or beyond the camera's frame to help us. So, like the children in Skinnamarink, we call out in a hushed voice. It's within that whispered cry that the true moment of terror resides. No matter how many times we call out for help, we worry that no one is going to respond because we're afraid that there may not be anyone out there to respond. Whether we're staring into the eyes of a demonically possessed doll or a piece of surveillance equipment that looks like a doll, one thing is for sure, we're not safe. Even in our own homes, even when surrounded by the dolls and toys and technologies that we so often rely upon to comfort us in our time of need. Because as it turns out, the threat isn't coming from outside, it's coming from inside the house and no one is coming to help. So until next time, be afraid. Be Afraid is a production of Christianity Today, Uncommon Voices Collective, and Brim Film at Fuller Theological Seminary. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producer and graphic designer is Steven Scheidler. Produced, edited, and mixed by TJ Hester. Music by Jeremy Hunt and Koholeth. Written and hosted by me, Cutter Calloway. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.